Once again, we turn in our Bibles to the book of Luke. If you'd like to join me, and we're in Luke chapter 5. Oh, how we are as a people. How we get so tired of our old things. You know what I'm talking about. We leave a lot of waste behind us in this world of that we're, of what we call life that we walk through, don't we? Always desiring the newest things that are available, the newest car, the newest clothes, the newest computer, the newest radio, the newest whatever it is. We love our new things, don't we? We've been playing with that thing for a little while now, you know, that ball that you bounce around outside and we play outside until the dark. That's the way it was when I was a kid. Nowadays, it's the newest thing is sitting around looking at our phone, playing on the computer, isn't it? And that, I, I'm guilty of this. I'm talking to myself here. We love new things. I remember Tom Sullivan, some of you may know of him. He was a, a radio show host here in California for a while, and, and uh, he mentioned when the electric cars came out, he just he says, I can't wait till the next one comes out. I'm going to go buy it. i got to have something new. It's our nature. We get excited about the new things. I've played with that. I've done that. I know it's all, yeah, I want this new thing. We, make, we love our new things, don't we? That's my point. Religion is no different. You know, one of the things that amazes me most about Scripture is that everything we see in the Old Testament all the way back to where the Lord inspired Moses to record is happening exactly the same today. Religion is no different. No different. What's the newest in technology? How can we get the word out more in the newest thing? What, what can we do in the pulpit that is newer today where, that we might attract the younger group, the younger folks? You know, they, they've gone through a lot of that over these past few years, haven't they? Since I was a kid, I remember when uh, Warehouse Ministries was kind of the first religious group to introduce rock and roll bands into, this, into the church. They, they would bring in groups and they would fill up warehouses full of kids, full of young folks. The, the, the Haight-Ashbury group of my day, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and they filled us up, filled up the church with, with young folks who loved the rock and roll. That was the new thing. And then, and then they, they expanded on that even more to the point where there was this one church in, in Las Vegas that we attended one time. Uh, and boy, I'll tell you, I didn't want to go there, but I was kind of cornered into it, so I did. And I went to the church, and they had Starbucks. They had their own Starbucks store. Not free coffee, but store on each end of the building. 2,000 people would gather in that church on Christmas Eve. Three times. So that's 6,000 people. They had their own Starbucks. They had TV screens so big behind the guy, or behind the, I'm sorry, back in the back of the room. They were so big that you couldn't even fit them on my front room wall. Three of them. And the only people looking at it was the guy standing on stage to see how he looked. And then... I was over at another church over here in Roseville one time. My, uh, my, uh, one of my business associates 
came to church here, and so I had to go to church with him. He said, now you went, I went to your church. you got to come to mine. All right, I'll go with you. They had fog. You know that fake fog that you can produce with a machine? Rolling across the stage. I mean, it was just like, what in the world? Why is it so foggy over there? And the music was playing. Just, you know how it is. Old yeller type music just grabs your heart. They do that with music, you know. It's called elevator music. It was proven in that. (laughs) Music can grab your heart. And I asked the guy afterwards, I said, what in the world is all that for? He goes, just to enhance the music, to grab at your heart, to get you to come down to the front and give yourself to Christ. Really? People love the new things, don't they? In Luke chapter 5, our Lord had just called with a holy calling one of his elect. His name was Levi. That's Matthew, by the way, if you don't know. That's Matthew, the one who wrote the book that we know of Matthew. He was so elated that the Lord saved him, a wretch like him, that the Lord gave him a new heart. He was so elated that he went out and he took his riches and he threw a bank. And he invited everybody in. All of his friends, all of his buddies that he hung out with, the other publicans, the other tax collectors, the other sinners. And he, and he invited the Pharisees in. The, the Pharisees, the religious crew, they invited them in to come into, come into his house to this banquet. Hear this one who calls people out of the darkness they walk in. Hear this one who gives sight to the blind. Hear this one who calls his people with the power of God. And they all came, including some apostles of John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He had some followers, some disciples that followed him, including them. They came. He was so elated that the Lord would have mercy on a wretch like him. He threw this banquet and he invited all of his friends. We looked at that last week, or two weeks ago in the book of Luke, titled The House of Sinners. But not only did he follow Christ, he wanted others to know him. He wanted others to follow. Come here about this man who saved this sinner. Come here about the one who rules over everything, who's sovereign God over all of creation, who's my Lord. Levi, Matthew, wanted six sinners, six souls to know the healing of the Master's hand. So he threw a lavish dinner in honor of the Son of God. And hordes of people came, tax collectors, Romans, Jewish scribes, Pharisees, disciples of John the Baptist, the Lord's own disciples were there, the Son of God himself, and numerous sinners, numerous sinners. Again, the religious leaders were not happy about that at all. Oh, they came, but they said, look at all these people. They should be over there in this temple where there were Worship. And here they are over here with this guy. Look with me, if you would, at verse 30 and 32 of Luke chapter 5. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answered said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
And then these Pharisees who were murmuring about this, they ignored his answer and they went on in their feeble attempt to charge our Lord the Savior and to charge those that follow him with something. Look at verse 33. And they said unto him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine? Thine eat and drink. Why do John the Baptist's disciples do what we do, fast and, 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 and pray, and yours are celebrating, having a good time eating, having a big banquet? <laughs> Folks, that's what we're doing today. We're feasting right now. You've been invited into this little place and rescue, those of you who are here personally and those of you who are online, to feast on the Savior. That was what Matthew was doing. He was inviting everybody to come in and feast on the one who we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Not literally, but spiritually. Why do yours eat and drink? It's common to go out in the in the old days. It was common to go out and show with a public declaration how you deny yourself the needs of your body in a whole, making you a holy person. How many do we know every Sunday morning go out into public and make a declaration of themselves as something holy? something holy. Fasting was exactly that. It was something that God gave as, a, as part of the law. You know, I'll get to that in just a moment, actually. I recall hearing his words once. I can't join you on Sunday till after I get out of services. i got to go to church first. And then we can go drink all afternoon and play at the lake. Our Lord answers these Pharisees again. This time he refers to the bride of Christ. Look at verses 33 and 34 and 35. And he said unto them, Can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Can you, can you make those who are celebrating the joy of their bridegroom with them? The bride? That's what it's referring to. You and I are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. Can you, can you ask them not to have joy while he is with them? See, fasting in the old days was this. Fasting was a sign of repentance and sorrow, pouring sackcloth and ashes on your head. I'm a sinner. I've sinned, and this, this is what we do. And they took that ordinance that God had established in His law, and like they do with everything, they began to add stuff new to it. They took the new things. You know, that's not good enough. Let's, let's go out into the public and do it there. They did the same thing with prayers. They would go out into the marketplace and pray for hours on end. See how, see how holy I am? See how dedicated I am to the Lord? I'm out here praying to Him right now. They took something that God had set, set for them as an ordinance of repentance. That's what fasting was all about. It was turning from being gluttonous Turning from James has been experiencing that quite a bit for the last couple of weeks. I'm a glutton, <coughs> but you've been fasting a little bit, yeah. yeah. Not to make you more holy, but to make your body better. And that's the whole idea of what fasting was in that time. Yes, it was a picture of turning from the flesh 
and turning to Christ. That's what repentance means. It means to be turned from. Lord, turn us and we shall be turned. Repentance is granted of the Lord. I really say those two things because so many in today's world think that repentance is something we give to God. Folks, we give nothing to God. He gives us everything. Fasting was an ordinance that was given to Israel in the law to be a symbol, to be a symbol of, our, of our natural tendencies of raising oneself up above what we should and to mourn for our sin. Certain fasts were prescribed under the law as times of a personal and national public humiliation. But the Pharisees had ignored the spiritual thing, symbolized, and they capitalized on it into the outward ceremony. It was like all the clothing that they put upon themselves, all the fancy robes, just like the Pope and the Catholic Pope does. This makes me so much holier. This lets everybody know that I'm a holy man. They not only insisted on keeping their days of fasting, but they added many, many, many more to it. So by the time it come around to this, it was by nature. It was their desire. Our Lord warns us in the book of Jude of men who will creep into the churches and do the same thing. They'll turn the word of God into lasciviousness. That's what these Jews had done. That's what the religious Israel had done. They turned the word of God into wickedness. Our Lord and his disciples had nothing to do with such nonsense, and you and I should beware of such as well. With regard to fasting, our Lord's doctrine is clear. His presence in grace removes all need for sorrow and mourning. That which is fasting symbolized among his people. He says this, he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then the bride will be sorrowful and mourn. That was the time of fasting, and the God's people did. When we consider the Lord in his table, we, we fast for a moment. When we come to our Lord in humility, in what we are before him, and be reminded of what the greatness of what he did in his grace and his mercy for us and giving himself for us. But that's not the way it is right now. Our Lord has risen. We have celebration all the time. Folks, folks ask me, you know, what was that, Easter? Easter is a symbol of, of the resurrection of Christ. And I celebrate the resurrection of my Savior every day. Not just one day a year. Every day. Every day is a day of celebration for my Lord sits on his throne. There was a time of weeping for the bride when the Lord was crucified and buried. But the resurrection, our Lord is, but with the resurrection of our Lord, the outpouring of the Spirit of grace is upon us. Now we rejoice. What grace our Lord has for us. What mercy He has for a people. We rejoice in a way that is unspeakable and full of glory. Glory for Him. The bridegroom is with us to provide for us, to protect us, and to comfort us. Why should we fast now? These things we rejoice in our hearts. Our Lord identifies Himself as the bridegroom and all the chosen redeemed sinners as His bride. 
Mark your spot here in Luke and turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read these words. Speaking of our Lord identifying Himself as our bridegroom. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. What a beautiful picture. Oh, how I wished. Oh, how I prayed that I could love you as our Lord loves us. Husbands, love your wives. Is there any more beautiful picture of our Savior and His people than that? As Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify it, set it apart and cleanse it, cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He might present it to Himself A glorious church. A glorious church not having spot. Folks, we are spotless. All of our iniquities were laid on Him. He gave Himself for His church that we might spend an eternity with our bridegroom. A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Just to just to express to you and I, us men, just to express to us, if we didn't understand what he said a moment ago about loving our wives like he loves us, love our wives as ourselves. That's how Christ loves us. Does he not love himself? Would he not give himself everything as the creator of all things? Well, then why wouldn't he give you and I all things? He gave his only begotten Son. How shall he not give us all things? Him that loveth his wife loveth himself. Verse 29, For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord of the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. The Son of God espoused himself to us in eternity before the world was ever made. He had bought us and washed us in his own blood when he came here in the flesh and shed his blood for us. We are wed to him by faith, wearing the wedding garments that he has provided us with. We are his bride, and he is our husband. What does that mean? That means that we're objects of his tender love. If he's loved you, Roger, from before the world was, how shall he not give you everything? How shall he not adorn you, clothe you in the most wondrous thing he has? His own son, his own righteousness. We are privileged to enjoy the mystical union between God, between the Son of God in ourselves. We are forever His. Our Lord says in His Word, He says, What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. He also says He hateth putting away. We shall ever we shall forever participate in the and in and possess all that is his. That's what we read in Romans 8, verses 16 through 17. It says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, 
than errors. You know what it is to be an error, right? That means you get, you, 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 you receive part of them. In our day, to be an heir means you receive something that they've earned, something that they've built up. But to be an heir is to receive part of something of them. To receive our inheritance of God, which is everything. That's what it says. It says, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. He's the bridegroom of our souls. And will one day present us before his Father in all of the universe as chaste virgins, perfect, without blemish. Now let's see the warning of this that we've just read. True believers are sometimes weak, aren't we? If if God's going to show us one thing, if he's going to show us one thing outside of the love of his Son, the Lord Jesus, he's going to show us how weak we are. He's going to let us stumble. won't let us fall. But we can sure kick that torn, that coffee table corner, can't we? In the middle of the night and scream out, Oh, my toe! That was painful. We were talking about this in Bible study. Do you think Jonah found it to be painful when he ran from the Lord? The Lord allowed him to do that, didn't he? As Lord of all, He allowed Jonah to run. He allowed Jonah to... After he told Jonah to go forth and do something, Jonah said, no, I'm not, and he ran the other way. I knew you were going to do that, and here comes the good part, and you're going to stub your toes so hard you'll come out the other side. Salvation is of the Lord. True believers are sometimes weak. Weak believers often are swayed easily. Easily. Sidetracked, you might say, especially by religious practices. Customs of men, new things, things that people want to add into services. John's disciples, though true disciples they were, were greatly impressed by the Pharisees, by the outward show of religion, with the washing of the hands, with fasting and praying in public places. I can tell you this for sure God's sheep will not follow a stranger's words, not into death. But we can stumble at those around us in our lives. I have a family member who loves to spend time with those who worship on Saturdays. And I'm told, and I was almost swayed by this, as I thought more and more about it, I was I, I was almost swayed by this. I was told, you know, God mentions the seventh day in Sabbath so many times in his scriptures that it's got to be good for the soul. It's kind of like walking in the ways of God. Walking in a godly in, in, in practical godliness. We, we do it because it's good for us. It's like you've tilled the land for six years and in the seventh year you rest. Why? Because it's good for the land. I almost fell for this. I almost fell for this. Surely back there, she's been through it. She knows, she knows exactly what, what I'm about to say next. <laughs> but she worships with those who believe that that's salvation. That if you don't do that on Saturday, you're not saved. If you don't do this and you don't do that, then you're not saved. That's how easy it is to fall into those around you. 
religious ceremonies. A friend of mine is mixing it up. They used to come to the Lord's table, and I'm thinking that might not be such a bad idea. They only come to the Lord's table certain times. They only sing. They only, they get up and they pray the same way every Sunday. They get up and they sing the songs every Sunday. And he's mixing it up, thinking, you know what? Maybe we've made a ritual out of this. That's possible. That is possible. John's disciples were greatly impressed by the Pharisees' outward showing of religion and public prayers. God's saints have an unction from the Holy One and cannot be deceived with regard to the gospel, but the saints of this world are frail, are we not? We're weak, are we not? We're sinful men and women of the flesh and blood. Sometimes we fall under the influence of wicked men, thinking that they're doing something good. Sometimes by bad influences of people, we think that are sincere, we get sidetracked a little bit, and we might get pulled into it. That's exactly what had happened with the disciples of John the Baptist. They got to listening to to the Pharisees with whom they had in common the practice of religious ceremonial fasting. They ignored the indescribably far greater issue, and that is the issue of redemption. They ignored the, the issue of grace, the issue of forgiveness, and they joined the Pharisees. They actually joined them in railing on God's disciples, on the Lord Jesus' disciples. That's what we just read there. If you look over in the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 9, you can do this in your own time. Look, go look at Matthew 9.14. It'll tell you they joined in on the railing with Christ. Why is this a warning to you and I? Because we're no different than anybody else. If the disciples of John the Baptist were easily swayed, you and I could be too. Is coming to the table a ritual for us? Examine your hearts. That's what this is bringing to me. Examine my heart. Am I in the faith? Or am I in the ritualism of, of religion? May God the Holy Spirit keep us from being moved away from the simplicity of the gospel. We had a couple come here for a while who, a retired preacher, You most, most of you know who he was. When he found out he couldn't teach, when he found out that I wasn't going to let him teach about the end times, he left. My thought is, Where was the gospel to him? Were the end times so important that the gospel was no more, no longer anymore? No longer important to him? Now I want to address the real issue, and I'll make it quick. We've only got a few minutes left. The issue is old is better. I've had people leave messages on this church phone. John, if you'll just call me. I I live in Chico. I could be there easily on a Saturday and teach you how to grow your church. I get emails to the church website, to the church email address. Such and such web builder can build up your website to where you can attract more people. We have new things to attract more people. I want to get to the issue. The issue is old is better. The old ways are better. Look at the front of your bulletin, if you would, with me, please. Old Testament ways. Jeremiah 6.16 Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. That's the same word, paths and ways. Ask for the old ways. Where is the good way? And walk 
therein, and ye shall find rest for your soul. I mentioned earlier, times haven't changed. People today are the same as they were then. People in the days of Jeremiah were the same as they are today. They were looking for something new, something more. The gospel was not enough. I need more than that. Do you need more than the gospel? Do you need a bunch of fancy places? This is not the place you're going to find a fancy band playing the music. We play the same music. You hear the same message every Sunday, every Friday night. Christ and Him crucified because that's the gospel. That's the gospel the Lord uses to save His people. That's the gospel He uses to call His children out of darkness. That's the gospel He uses to feed His sheep. I'm one of His sheep and that's what I want to hear. I want to hear about my Savior who gave Himself for me out of His love for me. Look at this parable. Verse 36 through 39. And He spake also a parable unto them, No man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old. That's our Lord's Word. Our Lord is speaking to you and I right now. The old ways are the ways of Christ. The ways of the Gospel. No man putteth a new a piece of new garment upon an old, if otherwise then both the new maketh the rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. Verse 37, And no man putteth new wine in old bottles, else the new wine will burst with the bottles, and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. No man also have drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith, The old is better. You say, well, John, what are the old ways? Did you know the gospel was preached the very day that Adam and Eve sinned against God? That was the gospel message that came forth when the Lord saw that they were naked, when they had seen that they were naked. What were they naked? Their sins were presented before God. God saw it all. They saw their nakedness and they tried to do what? They tried to clothe themselves. I was listening to Aaron Greenleaf preach this morning in, in uh, Danville up at Don Fortner's church. Buddy, I'll tell you, if you got a time to listen to a message this afternoon, go tune into YouTube, YouTube to Danville Gospel Church. Listen to Aaron Greenleaf preach a message today that will blow your socks off. But he was bringing out in the message how the gospel has been around since the beginning of time. There are two types of religion. The religion of works and the religion of grace. And both of those religions were expressed in the very thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They tried to clothe themselves. They tried to make themselves righteous. They tried to cover their own sins by taking fiddly figlies and sewing them together. What was it that cleansed Adam and Eve from their sins. The clothing of their Savior. The blood was shed. An animal was sacrificed. That was the true clothing. A picture of the one who clothes us and clothes, clothes us in his own righteousness. Did you know that thousands of years had passed before the law of fasting had been given? Before any of the laws of do this and don't do that were given? That didn't come along until after Moses and the children of Egypt had been delivered from Egypt. That was a long, long time. Yet grace was preached from the beginning. 
The old story is the story of grace. The old story is the story of sovereignty. The old story is the story of Christ, the God-man. The old story is the story of His blood. The old story is the story of His resurrection and repentance. Turn over to the book of Jonah. I've got a minute or two left here. I'll try to cover this in that two minutes. Turn over to the book of Jonah. Aaron brought this out in a much, much more in-depth way. And I, I, I highly recommend you listen to his, his message today. But look at with me here at chapter 3, if you would. We're talking about the old ways. The ways before the law was given. Jonah sees here, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah. First off, Jonah didn't get smart. He didn't just all of a sudden say, I'm going to stop walking in the old path. I'm going to walk in a new one. The Lord's word came to him as it comes to all of God's children. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. That brings out another thing that Aaron brought out. Did you, really, did, did you hear that? He came out a second time. Remember the first time Jonah was given the word and he ran from God, didn't he? God loves his people so much he's never going to leave us. He's going to come to us again and again and again in His Word. Oh, I'm so thankful to hear that because i got to come to His Word as often as I can. I want His Word to come to me all the time. He says, Arise, go into Nineveh, the great city, and preach unto it. Do what? Preach. Preach the old message. Preach the message of grace, the message of love, the message of sovereignty. Preach the message that I bid thee. So Jonah arose. Here we see God's people do what God has told us to do. We may not do it perfectly. We may not do it as the way we want to. There's a day coming when we will. There's a day when the Lord will deliver each and every one of us out of this body of death into the glorious presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be thrown. Something Aaron brought out this morning that really hit home. The message that he's bringing here, if you just notice what we just read, is forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Folks, if I don't tell you this, and you die and go through that door marked death, then your blood is on me. There's a day coming. There's a day coming when each and every one of us will stand before God Almighty and answer for our actions. What is your answer going to be? Is it going to be, but Lord, have I not done things in your name? Or is it going to be, Lord, I have no answer except for Christ and Him crucified for me? I'm not worthy for you to even look upon me in this flesh. But in my Savior, I stand perfect in Him. If I don't warn you that the day is coming, and the day may be today, where you'll go through that door marked death, if you're not in Christ, you're going to spend an eternity trying to pay your debt and never succeed. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried, and he said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Did you notice who they believed? They didn't believe Jonah. 
they believed God. They believed the message that God had sent Jonah to preach. Let's continue on. Proclaim that God had and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth and the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. They believed for this reason. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. Jesus Christ got up from his throne and he took off his robe. He laid his robe from him and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes for you and I. He humbled himself and became flesh. He was obedient even unto the cross. And he caused, verse 7, and he caused it to be proclaimed. The king, who is the king? Our Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the king? He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. Aaron brings out the message of, you know what the way of man is? Works. That's our natural way is works. Turn from your evil way and turn to the way, the one who says, I am the way. What is what is the way? It's grace. It's grace from our Savior. It's mercy from the Lord himself. I bid you this morning, folks, turn from the way that is natural to you and turn to the way the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance is. I've been told that I don't preach enough on repentance. Folks, every time I ask you to turn from your ways, every time I warn you to turn from the ways that are natural to you, to turn from our idols, ourselves, our sin, and turn to Christ, that's repentance. Amen?